welcome to another episode of Mountain Stories, a podcast from the Institute of Mountain Research at Westminster College here in Salt Lake City, Utah. We're here to tell stories about the mountains and the people who live, work, and play in them. I'm Brent Olson, one of the co-directors of the Institute, and today we're going to be continuing to tell some stories about the Great Salt Lake and its connection to the mountains that surround us. And once again, we owe a huge note of thanks to the Great Salt Lake Institute for their work and collaboration. Today, we have three pretty different stories to share with you. We'll start with a conversation with Kara Kornhauser. Kara is a senior here at Westminster, and she spent the summer doing some research on the tar seeps on the shores of the lake. We talked about the tar seeps, the pelicans that sometimes get entrapped in them, and some of the questions that emerge from looking at animals in degraded landscapes. The story of pelicans doesn't end there, however. In part two, we'll be talking with Connor Lockie, who recently composed a piece of music inspired by the pelicans on the lake, and we'll share that piece of music with you. It's called Mass for Pelicans. Finally, Jeff and I sat down with Hikmet Lowe and Scout Envy this week to talk about their summer collaborative research project, Landscapes of Necessity. That project looks at the cultures of the lake and the resources that those cultures have taken advantage of. Last week, we spent some time discussing the resorts that occupied the shores of the lake for most of the last century. The shore of the lake featured in Kara's research, however, isn't quite so inspiring. We had hoped to head out to the tar seeps for this interview, but the first winter snowstorm forced us into my office. I asked her to describe what we'd be looking at if we were at her research site. Uh, well, my name is Kara Kornhauser. I am a senior at Westminster College. Well, we would walk out from the parking lot on a slightly raised up surface of rocks that goes down to the, the shore or the bed of the lake, which is just a silty, sandy clay mixture that when you step on it, it kind of sinks you into the ground. Um, and we would walk out, you wouldn't be able to see the water straight out from the tar seeps. You would see these wooden poles sticking out of the ground and a line to your left along the promontory mountains and in a circle around a random tar seep in front of you as you walked out. And to your right is the spiral jetty. As far as the eye can see is lake bed. Sometimes you can see a little bit of the water line as you get closer. And the Promontory Mountains, Antelope Island, Gunnison Island, and uh, the mountains to the west. A tar seep is an oil spring. So there's a reservoir of oil under the ground. In this particular case, it's 80 feet under the ground in uh, a porous rock bed. And this tar can seep from the ground because of cracks caused by uh, fractures and um, fissures in the ground that are along fault lines. So you see that tar seeps naturally occur in lines. These tar seeps are likely running along a small fault and tar escapes and bubbles up to the surface. It can either form a flat surface on the lake bed, which is sticky. It is tar. It's a low grade, kind of dirty tar, I guess. And it's very thick, viscous, brownish, red colored, material that hardens when it gets cold and it indirect sunlight and heat gets warmer. Some of them also form a volcano-like mound around the spring 
uh, and uh, the center of it forms with this little pool of tar. They're pretty. Sometimes in the sp uh, spring they get salt crusted. They have all of the salt. It's really good contrast of black and white of the salt and the tar. So my research particularly looked at birds that were entrapped on the tar seeps over the season, or the summer season, and particularly American white pelicans. So American white pelicans fly from Gunnison Island to the Bear River Bird Refuge, and the tar seeps are right in the middle. They make that flight for food and fresh water. In early August, the fledgling pelicans are making their first flight, and when they reach the tar seeps in the spiral jetty area, they're tired and they want to take a break, so they land there. And I was trying to figure out why they landed there, what brought them to the tar seeps, and the process of their entrapment, as well as the time of day and year that entrapment occurred, so that we could better understand why particular species get entrapped. I found a lot of things uh, that I wasn't expecting. Um, one of which was that my cameras caught pelicans walking on the tar seeps rather than landing and falling into the tar seeps. I had previously thought at the beginning of this project that the pelicans would land on the seeps, which some of them do, but many of them were photographed walking across the surface without getting stuck, and I even have photos of uh, pelicans walking across the surface and then tripping and becoming entrapped. Also found a much higher abundance of birds this season than had previously been monitored. On the largest seep, there were seven previously entrapped pelicans, as well as other smaller unidentified birds, and this year there were 28. So. Uh, much higher abundance of birds. Um, we would need to have more years of data to understand why that might be uh, an increase. There, we've hypothesized that it could be because of a large flock of birds landing at the same time or just more birds landing in that area because there's less water in the lake, but we're not sure right now. <laughs> Normally, I go out there, I go to each of the three seeps I'm monitoring, uh, two of which are naturally occurring, I believe, and one of which is likely unnatural and caused by human interaction and mine, uh, oil mining in that area. On a normal day, I would go to each of the three seeps, collect pictures from my cameras and data from my temperature loggers, and then record any thing that my cameras might not have caught or record um, field notes of species I see and then compare it to my photos later on. On an unusual day, which happened on August 26th, I went out with a couple of paleontologists, Greg McDonald being one of them, my uh, oh, an advisor on the project. and. We were visiting, we walked out to the largest seep and saw pelicans moving on the seep and realized that there were pelicans in the process of entrapment. And so when we walked up to the seep where there had been one previously entrapped pelican for the season, there were 28. And three of them were still alive and active.
actively struggling to escape from the tar. Uh, as we were there, we watched them go from, we watched one of them go from wings outstretched, sort of stuck in tar to completely covered its head and its beak and wings and basically just laying on the seat kind of. It, it's, it's rough. <laughs> um, I had hoped we would be able to help one of the birds because it hadn't seemed very far gone at that point. But the project that we were doing kind of encouraged us, encouraged us not to. There was also no way that that bird would have made it even if we had taken it out of the seat. Uh, the day before, I had gotten a call from Jamie asking if I knew how to remove tar from things because a couple of people had gone out there and found a bird in the tar seat, took it home with them and tried to clean it off. Tall just away because they study dead animals for a living, so they didn't seem all too phased by it. But um, I've later talked to Greg and he, he was upset by it as well. It's hard to watch an animal die when you can't do anything to to either help them or put them out of their misery. It's dying on it, and so it took 10 or 15 minutes to download onto my computer. I sat there and watched these birds die, and I cried a little bit. I had sent the paleontologists away because they study dead animals for a living, so they didn't seem all too phased by it, but I I love animals. I, I love alive animals. <laughs> um, I never thought I'd find myself studying dead animals um, and recently dead animals specifically. So it's been really interesting to balance what is science and what is just feeling uh, emotions that should go along with this. And Jamie was very helpful with helping me process that day after because I got home and didn't really know what to think about it. And so she encouraged me to write something about it. So I went home and I just kind of poured everything I felt from that day out and then left it for a couple of days. But when I had to look back at my images, that kind of stirred the pot a little bit. <laughs> uh, but now I can look back on it and I've done enough of the emotional labor that went along with watching animals die to be really excited about seeing the animals that are entrapped in the tar seeps as future fossils. So at places like the La Brea Tar Pits, they excavate tar pits and find prehistoric animals and late Pleistocene Ice Age mammals specifically. And can use that information to tell us about climate and how animals evolve and adapt to a changing climate in times of ice age and warming. And so it's really neat to be able to take what I'm learning here and apply it to how animals may have gotten entrapped in those tar pits, how we can see what's currently happening at the tar seeps and apply it to what could have happened at the La Brea tar pits and other tar pits all around the world. Recently, we've been working to get volunteers to go out and help us do a scan of the beach to tell us more about the mortality rate of birds in the tar seeps as opposed to birds on the beach in the area. And so we have a bunch of students 
hopefully going out with us soon to monitor the beach and give us more data about what's happening out there. And hopefully we'll be able to connect more people to that environment because it's a really neat place to visit. Not a lot of people get to go out there and I think people will really enjoy it. Um, we're also collaborating with um, the Division of Natural Resources, Wildlife Resources, Oil, Gas and Mining, and Forestry, Fire and State Lands uh, in an effort to learn more about the tar seeps and potentially clean up one of the tar seeps that was leaking. The tar seeps were capped in the early 2000s. The EPA worked with oil, gas, and mining to cap old oil wells, clean up the area, remove waste. And one of those caps has potentially failed. It's been the largest seep that entrapped 28 pelicans. I saw expand at a much quicker rate than the other seeps I was monitoring. That led me to believe that that seep was unnaturally flowing and oil, gas, and mining seem to agree with that. They have plans to clean up that seep as well. Definitely digging back down and recapping and potentially cleaning up the entire surface of the seep and putting the oil into a land farm, which would allow different microbes and bacteria to break down the oil in, in a natural process and hopefully reduce the amount of birds that are entrapped out there unnaturally. We still see entrapments in the other seeps as well, but um, not as high of an abundance of animals. Currently, the project to assess the amount of birds that die on the lake bed versus in the tar seeps in that area, um, that will help us determine how many birds are landing in the seeps in proportion to how many die. and. We're also working on writing a journal article so that when uh, a, the state has had this come up a few times and each time they kind of start from ground zero, this paper will hopefully be able to guide them through whatever steps they decide to take in the future regarding cleaning up seeps, educating the public about seeps. We're hoping to get us some signage out there to educate people and let them know that they might want to put their dog on a leash. <laughs> Um, as well as educate people that these are naturally occurring and that even if there are dead animals in them, you know, sometimes nature is metal and <laughs> does things that are unpleasant. A lot of it is educating people about what we have learned so far and making sure that the state has something that they can go to to get information when this comes up again. One thing that's important to note is that the tar seeps are sensitive to um, warmer temperatures. And so with increasing lengths of summers and increasing temperatures in the summer and sporadically warmer temperatures throughout the year, we'll probably see different patterns of expansion and entrapment at the seeps, as well as low lake levels or changing lake levels used to cover these seeps sporadically and for long periods of time. And we'll see these tar seeps exposed and entrapping animals for longer periods of time than may have ever been recorded for these particular tar seeps. And I think that that's important to realize because we don't see the direct effects to strange ecosystems that human caused climate change 
impacts. And so I've had the privilege to look at this really interesting place that's directly impacted by a changing climate and will directly impact animals in the area that many people haven't gotten to see firsthand. And so I'd like to, to share that with as many people as possible. I've learned a lot about scientific methods and the processes of research, but I've also learned about educating people about a space that they have never been before and how much fun it is to bring people out to a landscape that looks like Mars and has these tar seeds and show them it's a really neat place that I've learned a lot about and be an expert about something that people might have never heard of before. So that's been awesome. And also I've had to learn how to speak publicly, uh, like at Westminster Thinks Big, which was the largest group I've ever spoken to. And it's encouraged me to break out of my shell and meet people that I would not normally interact with. <laughs> I'm hoping to learn more about paleontology and identification of dead birds, <laughs> but that's, that's coming in the future, hopefully. I think that the lake is connected to the mountains through many aspects, but water being one of the largest aspects. Uh, the lake is fed off of runoff from the mountains. And what's interesting is that people that live here are easily connected to the mountains and don't necessarily realize that they have a big lake ecosystem that provides habitat for millions of birds and migratory birds and um, it's, it's neat that people can become connected with it over time as they get to know it better. I would encourage other people to, to go out there and see it as well. Maybe not this next summer. It's the Spike 150, the 150th anniversary of Golden Spike. So there's going to be a lot of tourism there and Otherwise, I would really recommend people to go visit and see what's going on. We have some great photos and videos from Kara's research site on the podcast website, podcast.mountainresearch.org. To visually accompany chapter two of today's episode, you may want to have a look at the Pelicam Instagram account at Peli Project, P-E-L-I-P-R-O-J-E-C-T. Connor Lockie's here to introduce his new composition, Mass for Pelicans, that should offer great music to go with those photos. For sure. My name's Connor Lockie. I'm a music and English student here at Westminster. I'm graduating in May. And the piece is called Mass for Pelicans. And the whole idea for it was um, it's an electronic piece of music, basically about the way that the urban population here in Salt Lake has interacted with the wildlife population and how that's not always a very equal relationship, I guess. That's the main context for the piece. So I was part of that SALT program that happened this summer, which is students and art, scientists and artists learning together. I was feeling a little lost as to what exactly I wanted to do. I mean, there's a lot of avenues to go down in regards to relating science to music. Um, 
And I decided, you know, maybe just use my resources well. And I knew that Jamie was very invested in Pelican research. So I sat down with her a little bit to talk. And she gave me this reading that describes the migratory patterns and the just general life cycle of a pelican. And it's kind of old. It was from the 50s. And one thing that struck me about it was it used a lot of weirdly religious language to talk about the kind of life cycle, again, of the pelicans. And so I started making this connection to an area of study that I've been kind of interested in on and off since I've been here, which is medieval music and especially like masses with monks and stuff. And so I took a bunch of pitch material from an old medieval mass and kind of used that as a foundation point for this piece because going back and reading about why medieval music was so important to monks and to peasants and stuff, a lot of the language really did mirror exactly what's going on with pelican populations here in the Great Salt Lake, like struggle for food, there's disease everywhere, there's war. And it was really interesting to kind of make that connection. And then that became this foundational conceptual principle that guided a lot of my piece. And then from there, I went to the Salt Lake once, made a bunch of field recordings, got some sounds of water, some sounds of stepping on the sand and the tar pits bubbling and stuff, a little bit of that, which was really interesting, and got a bunch of public domain recordings from the Western Soundscape Archive, which is just really good. A bunch of people went out and made some really nice recordings of pelicans and just the general wildlife out in the Salt Lake that I used. And then I made a bunch of recordings at my house, uh, because the big contrast that I pull from throughout the entire piece is that, you know, the way that humans use the land and use the water sources is very different to the pelicans. So throughout, there's this huge contrast between, like, the sound of the water of the Great Salt Lake lapping against the shore or a pelican diving in the water for food against, like, a kettle boiling or a shower or a sink faucet and stuff like that. You know, things that we take for granted, but that do contribute to the overuse of water in this area. It's interesting, I mean, because, you know, a lot of medieval music was monophonic, which means there's one note happening at a time, there's no chords or harmonies or anything. So that's the part I pulled from throughout. There's these repeated phrases um, of notes, and, you know, it's not necessarily something that you could easily pick out, but they are pitch material that's pulled from the masses. And so it was really interesting because, again, a lot of it is just a group of people, like 40 people, singing one note together. And so then it becomes this huge textural experiment with like sine waves and synthesizers bouncing up against like the sounds of water and stuff. And I mean, in a sense, it might be kind of <laughs> in a weird way authentic, you know, because in that time, you know, like they didn't have soundproof rooms and all that. So, you know, there was obviously going to be a lot of environmental noise happening in like medieval England or medieval Germany when they were singing these masses. So, I mean, maybe there's that, but also it's totally just exploiting the sounds and making them this very artificial thing. And so here's A Mask for Pelicans by Connor Lockie. Thank you. 
Finally today, here's the conversation we had with Hikmet and Scout about their research, Landscape of Necessity. Okay, I'm Scout NV. I'm a student here at Westminster College and I'm studying English as my major and art as a minor in the Honors College. Hikmet Lowe, I'm the coordinator of adjunct faculty on campus. I've been teaching art history since 2006 and have been teaching in the Honors College for the last couple years. Jeff Nichols, a history professor, and I teach in uh, a little bit in Honors and some in ENVI, and I'm one of the directors of the Institute for Mountain Research. The IMR offers these small faculty-student collaborative research grants every summer. They're quite broad. They're meant to be interdisciplinary. The only criteria, basically, is that you come up with a plausible way that this is a that this is a mountain research topic. And I think this, this uh, qualified uh, quite easily because of the connection between uh, the mountain peoples and the lake and the remnant mountains that, uh, that still exist in the lake. And Stansbury is one of them. The project, I think the project started, Brent, during the honors class that you and I were teaching last spring. You and I were teaching environments in the space of art we had our students out on a road trip, and our first stop was the petroglyphs on Stansbury Island. And as we're walking up the hill, one of the students turns to me because it was a pretty precipitous walk up the hill to get to where these were. And one of the students said, I I'm, don't understand why these petroglyphs are all the way up here. Why wouldn't they just be down on the level of the lake? And without having knowledge or really thinking it through, my immediate response that I said to him was, well, probably during the time period when these people were here, I'm assuming it's archaic, Native Americans, this is where the lake was. The lake was at this level where we are. And then I obsessively thought about that the whole time for like months after that. Did I get that right? I started doing research. And then there was this opportunity to work on this project to be able to do that research but broaden out the mountains and the regions around the lake and what is the cultural history that's there. I took environments in the space of art, which was probably my favorite class that I've taken at Westminster so far. It was awesome. And I actually never did the field trip. I was gone the weekend that uh, the class got in some vans and went out. but. I just love the whole idea of the class of um, sort of merging 
environments and art. That's kind of something, even though I'm an English major, um, English is kind of like the perfect major for me, I think, because it allows me to just research and write on anything I'm interested in. So I heard that Hikmet was looking for some sort of an assistant um, or like a co-researcher to help her during the summer months, like looking at this huge project of people's relationship in the mountains. And that was just something that I was like, that sounds really cool, huge, like massive project. And I had that idea at the beginning, but I really didn't realize how huge of a project it would be. But I was just so down to work with Hikmet and just continue those themes that I've kind of connected to of people's relationships with the mountains, with the lake, with art. Yeah. It was pretty fascinating as I was doing research because I spent probably a little too much time with, but what are the mountains of the lake? And so it was defining what is like Bonneville, what is Great Salt Lake, what are these mountains? Because as I was getting into research and diving deep, was I looking at the Fremont, who were down in Fremont in the middle of the state, because like Bonneville reached all the way down there. So I think there was one point where we said we could have spent a year doing our research and that's, that was just an easy calculation. We could easily just still be researching this. Okay, we have these two different time frames and they're huge. So Hikmet was studying like indigenous peoples and their relationship to the lake and the mountains and she can expand on that. But then I took up the later part of when European peoples and Mormons, those groups started moving to the Salt Lake area and why they were moving there, how they were reacting to the lake and what the lake's purpose for them was, and then later why they were moving into the mountains for recreation. The, I've got a map in my office of Great Salt Lake and vicinity. I wanted to find all of the instances of pictographs and petroglyphs around Great Salt Lake, just being that discreet, not like Bonneville, but just around the lake as it exists now, determine their elevation determine which group of people, be it the Archaic or possibly the Fremont, were creating these works and correlate all of that information to dates and lake levels. Interestingly, one of the things that we found is that people are super protective of these sites. And so the only site that I've actually ever been to around the lake and seen these works is Brent with our class last spring. And then this fall, I went with a group of people to Stansbury Mountain and went up a 300-foot climb into a cave to see a pictograph. And so in looking at the different people, the different groups who are around the lake, the different resources that they were using, it always came back to this idea that it was about the water. And it was about the water in the mountains. So the water in the mountains was vital for people as they are traversing and thinking about being when I was up in this cave in Stansbury Mountain and looking across this vast space to Stansbury Island, people were just walking around this region all the time. I started moving then into interpretation and found a really fascinating and disturbing pattern of Let's put, let's overlay our culture onto these people who can't speak for themselves to talk about what we believe these markings are. And so as 
interpretation of rock art in, in this area and certainly in Nevada and California was happening. There was a, a, a number of people who were talking about how they resembled, you know, European paintings. And so the, the idea of interpretation then really took a hold because there was sort of an appropriate, trying to assimilate, trying to understand, but then an appropriation of why is it that we constantly, we, our people right now in 2018, have to find the ways that we're thinking about something and overlay it onto people from that time period. Yeah, a lot of my research was on appropriation, like in ski marketing or uh, like outdoor industries in general of Native American artworks. I was actually like born in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and that's where I grew up most of my life. And I didn't really realize it until I moved outside of that bubble and moved to another ski town, but not really a resort town. That's when I started picking up on like these themes of the Wild West, the cowboys and like Indians vibe that was going on. Really nasty. And a lot of my research was going at the philosophical viewpoint of what's going on there and why are these images so evident in these ski towns and ski industries in general. There were a lot of themes that were bouncing around this project. Mm -hmm. So like assimilation, appropriation, the theme of resources, water. And, and so to answer your question about why this idea of the necessity, it, it kept on coming back to that. It either goes two ways. That's what I found in a lot of my research was you either have like the very Europe, European Alps aspect or you have the cowboys and Indians vibe going on. And so I kind of looked at Park City as an interesting example of um, kind of the two merging together. It's not something that I wrote about extensively, but I definitely thought about it and how there's European Alps vibe. But a lot of the shops in Park City, a lot of them are catering to that Western aesthetic that is common through a lot of ski resort towns in Colorado, Jackson Hole. If you go back and look at the advertisements around like maybe like the 1950s, a lot of them are pretty problematic. So, so I'm really struck, I think you're exactly right when you talk about water tying those, those places together. But I think it's kind of interesting to look at necessity. Presumably, the native peoples that are exploiting the lake edges, they're doing it for necessity, we assume, uh, rather than recreation. And yet these ski resorts now are, are all about recreation, but they certainly need the water in the form of snow. And they're also workplace. People need those jobs. Because resources at the lake were on a decrease, that's what mainly caused people in my opinion, to look towards the mountains. There were other reasons too, so like the World War was happening at that time. There were just a few breaks that happened. But the lake resorts, there were like quite a few of them, and that was a huge, that drew people to the lake from pretty much all over the western states. It was an icon, the Great Salt Lake, which you normally don't think of. Like I had no idea of any of that history before I moved here, and the lake resorts are, aren't really out there anymore. People just didn't go to them anymore. There were different things happening. There was the war effort happening, so people didn't really go out to the lake to recreate. The lake levels steadily be, being on a decrease, but also just like fluctuating, and it's not just a stable place that you can go to and know that it's always going to be the same. I think that's why people started 
looking at the mountains being like, oh, every year winter's going to come, there's going to be snowfall, and we can profit on that and know that that's going to be a steady area of income for recreating and for tourism industries. That was one of my like takeaways from this project was the big question of what happens when that resource is no longer there. Like it's not going to jump to another land formation. It's not going to jump from lake to mountains. What's after the mountains? Where's the water going to be? I'm really deeply fascinated by how we name and look at landscapes. And particularly if we're doing that to speak on behalf of other people, historically, um, I have a, a huge amount of information still to sift through to be able to determine that. And that's just for the petroglyphs of Great Salt Lake. So rock art, just I'm not a rock art expert by any means, but I really enjoyed getting to learn about it this summer and to learn what the really good resources are to be able then to keep on doing that research. Because if we look at landscapes and we interpret them, we can do that ourselves. But when we do that on behalf of other people, it's both interesting and problematic. Um, in addition to that, like I think I've really sort of tried to focus in since this research on like analyzing place and my interpretations of place. And I kind of broke down place in my research as not just being the landscape there, but also like the histories, the collective memories, what's fabricated or what is appropriated in a place and just realizing all of those aspects and thinking about it. So when I'm in a place, I'm I may have some feeling about it. Oh, it's fake, or why is this vibe happening in this ski town, or what's going on here? And then asking those questions, it just sort of makes me critically think in on all these different themes. That, I mean, the broad picture is that we have had multiple groups of people who have lived here and populated the shore of the lake and the mountains. So starting with and always remembering that they were native to this region, people who were native to this region, and then understanding what that meant when Euro-Americans came in and the original people who were here were displaced. Kind of appreciating that there's a rich history here that's not readily available. I think that was like one of our final points of our research was realizing that those peoples are still here and they are making art and it's not this whole like nostalgic concept of petroglyphs in the past, but their art is still here, they're still making it. And so that was one of my takeaways, just not buying into the European appropriation of that art. Yeah, I just don't think people think too much about the lake. That's definitely been like, that was something we talked about in environments in the space of art a lot. The focus of that class was on land art. So we talked a lot about the land art that's out there, the spiral jetty and how that brings people to the lake. But again, those resorts aren't out there. Like people aren't really going out to the lake to recreate or to see. They just think it's this stagnant, stinky thing out there. For the last couple years for May term, Holly Simonson and I have been co-teaching Exploring Great Salt Lake. We take them out to Black Rock, which is not so black because of all the graffiti all over it. But I like to show them the historical pictures of the Kimball family 
as they built their resort house right there with the water and the boats and the lovely stone structure and what it meant to be there as a residence as opposed to what it is now with the highway and the train trestle and the water and the problematic water and Kennecott is right there. And it's an interesting cultural mix. As always, we have some photos and additional links on the podcast website, podcast.mountainresearch.org. There you'll find a link to the full research report from Hickman and Scout, and a link to Hickman's book, The Spiral Jetty and Cyclo, about Robert Smithson's piece of land art, and it's super close to the tar seep that's at the heart of Kara's research. You can also see photos from Kara's cameras on that website as well. Again, we have a lot of thanks to give out this week. Obviously, we need to thank Kara, Connor, Scout, and Hickmet for their time and their work. Also, thanks to the Honors College for funding Kara's summer research through the Summer Independent Research Grant. Thanks to the Great Salt Lake Institute for their work in bringing scientists and artists together to think about the lake. We should also thank the GeoFamily Foundation for funding the IMR Summer Collaborative Grants. Our background music this week comes from Heisen, and our theme music is Home by Pixie and the Partygrass Boys. Naomi always says that they are awesome and that you should check them out. And you can do that this winter during their regular shows at Brighton and their show at the Depot on December 29th. Thanks again for listening, and stay tuned for more stories from the mountains. Bye. Before-